Hello. Hello, everyone. To another meditation Q&A session. We're here today to learn and talk about the practice of mindfulness meditation for the purpose of seeing clearly. We're here to talk about meditation for the purpose of seeing clearly. We have to we have to understand, we have to have clear in our mind why we're here what the purpose is, what's it for. It's true with it's true with a lot of things in life. If you don't know why you're here, if you don't know what you're doing something for, of course it's easy to be doing it for the wrong reasons. Or to not have any solid reasons for doing what you do. When you do something for the wrong reasons, it's pretty easy to get the wrong results. When you don't have any good reason for doing what you do, well, it's also easy to get wrong results, but it's even easier to lose interest. Why do something when you have no reason? Why do something that has no purpose? In meditation, this is made more difficult by the fact that the purpose, the goal is unlike anything we've ever, unlike anything we've ever experienced realized before it, it's a problem with a lot of things i guess when you've never when you're doing something you've never done before it's hard to know what the result's going to be because well you've never experienced it so understanding why you are doing what you're doing is a challenge it's why with many things we need a guide When you're traveling through the forest, you need a guide because you've never been to your destination. Even if you found it, you might not even know it. Or more, more, more likely, even if you're on the right track, you wouldn't know if you're on the right track. You might still doubt, is this really the way? When you're training, it's hard to look for the signs of improvement. It's hard to know whether you're doing it right. It's hard to actually train in such a way as you attain the results you're looking for or the attain results that are beneficial. 
and meditation particularly. Without a guide, without someone who has attained the, the goal of seeing clearly, someone like the Buddha, without such a person, I'd have no, no clear idea of how to practice our ways of practicing meditation, as you can see throughout history, before the Buddha or outside the Buddha's teaching, ways of meditation are varied. The results are varied and they mostly don't come close to the goal of seeing clearly. The goal is so unlike what we've experienced that it's hard to even be motivated to experience it. Big reason for not focusing on the goal, especially early on, is that it's hard to even, even incline yourself towards it. Part of the practice, part of what we come to see clearly, in ways that we haven't seen before is what the actual problem is and what the actual goal is. It, it's not just about working towards a predetermined goal. It's about even just figuring out, aligning ourselves, straightening out our views, abandoning many of our views and beliefs. The goal in of course, the practice in, in meditation, mindfulness meditation, is not something that excites our, our, our minds in the beginning. Well, usually, because usually we, uh, what excites our minds are all the things that cause us suffering, all of our addictions, all of our aversions. And most of our habits are about avoiding things rather than facing them. And all and and to the extent that that's true, we're going to have a hard time getting excited or inclining towards facing our problems. And so the goal is going to be just as inaccessible or unrelatable to us. It's hard to think positively about letting go of everything, literally everything, when our whole being is built upon, is predicated upon clinging to things, desiring things. There's even debate about whether we should desire to want to meditate, whether we should desire freedom from suffering. Well, you can. You can desire freedom from suffering, but it's not really going to see you through. Because underneath all of that desire is all the desire that goes contrary to freedom from suffering. And so you really have to, if you want to, attain the goal of meditation, if you want to attain freedom 
You have to understand freedom as you go. You have to appreciate it through the practice. We don't appreciate freedom, peace. It's hard, hard for ordinary people to appreciate things. It's why these things. It's why so many people have no interest in meditation. They can't appreciate. From the point of view of a meditator, a person who's practiced mindfulness, it's hard to understand why, why people, why they don't see, why they don't get excited about freeing themselves. Why, why don't they work to free themselves from the things that are ob obviously causing them so much pain and stress? Because a meditator has seen that stress. It's come to understand that the things we think worth clinging to are not worth clinging to. The things that we crave for or desire for, even the things we hate, are not worth hating. And peace and freedom and clarity of mind come to see how valuable these are. You have to come to see. Even when you start meditating, clarity of mind might not even seem that. When we try, we, we try to make them sound as, as appealing as possible, but talk to anyone about nirvana, about nibbana, the cessation of suffering. It's really hard, hard to, to appreciate. Really, if you haven't experienced it, it's impossible to truly appreciate what freedom from suffering means. So we, fr we phrase it like that, freedom from suffering. It's not misleading or anything, but it's general enough to allow you to begin on a very practical level to straighten things out and, and get your priorities in order that you know what is important. Yes, I admit, I acknowledge, it's true. I am suffering. I am suffering. I am, I am uh, vulnerable to suffering because of my lack of mental training. I cause others suffering. All of this. And acknowledging that, we, we train. And as we train, it becomes clearer, and we start to see more clearly, ah, I'm suffering from this as well. I'm causing suffering because of this as well. It's a noble, noble undertaking. And that gives us confidence. We see how I have the power to be a better person. I have a power to be kinder power to be more peaceful the power to be happier when I thought I would, some people think they're happy when they're not or think they're perfectly happy and then realize through meditation that oh I can be even happier much much happier my happiness is very much dependent on my situation and vulnerable I can be happier than that 
can be at peace, never worrying or afraid of danger, calamity. We learn as we go. So we're here to learn. We're here to learn. We're here to develop. We're here for what is good. We're here to try to practice in such a way that we can learn more about what is good. Not everyone can say they're as interested in that as as as, as we are. So welcome everyone. The format today is me talking for a bit. You all can chat in chat for a bit. And now we come to the second part where you ask questions and we close the chat to anything but questions. So if you're going to post something, let it be only questions. And if you don't have any questions, just close your eyes. We'll practice together. Chris is here, kindly taking time out of his day to ask the questions. And I'm here to answer them. So I'm ready to begin when you are, Chris. All right, let's begin. And I ignored the discomfort of my stomach after a few notings and just go back to the rising and falling. It seems to be pretty persistent. I would note it for longer than that. Try and note it until it goes away. After a long time it doesn't go away, you can ignore it. But also note the disliking of it. It's discomfort, there's usually a disliking as well. So it, it's useful, sticking with things is about facing them, and that's the idea here. Stick with it, because facing it is going to change the way you look at it. It's going to change your attitude from wanting to run away from things to being strong enough to not be not be disturbed by them. Our suffering comes because we're not strong, we're not we're not at peace with with our reality. And facing things cultivates that peace when things don't have the power over you that they used to. When you say note all of that surrounding anxiety, butterflies, tension, heat, thoughts, etc., doesn't that conflict with noting one thing and going back to rising and falling? Okay, I keep getting these questions. Noting one thing and going back to the rising. I mean, that's, yeah, that's what you would do. Note one thing and go back. But uh, there are no rules to this game. It, I mean, there's no hard and fast rules. And it's not always going to be like that. So let's clear that up now. And Noting what something and then going back is a good uh, practice. There, there will be times where you'll note something and then you'll note something else. And then you go back to the rising and falling. Don't be too, no, don't go looking for rules like this. There's no conflict. You do what's important in that moment. Just try your best to go back to the rising and falling when, when something disappears, rather than going looking for other things to note. Sometimes one thing will interrupt something else. Well, then you'll note the other thing, and then you go back to the rising and falling. Try not to jump too much. It's not, it's not like you shouldn't be thinking these, you shouldn't be asking these questions when you're practicing. It, it will come, you'll, you'll get better at the practice. 
knowing that you should go back to the rising and falling is a useful thing to know because it'll help you to stay focused. That's all. I tend to note in rhythm. When I recognize this is the case, I note knowing. Should I actively try to not keep a rhythm when noting? No. No, that's fine. What you're doing is fine. Just keep doing that. Your mind will eventually get will lose its clinging, its grasp on that. Trying to find a rhythm. It's just a habit. It's a little bit of a distraction. Mind is distracted, is not so focused. Focusing means being on with one thing at a time. So you have no clue about rhythm when you're focusing on one object. Rhythm is, is sort of a unfocused uh, observation of things as as past and future. During meditation, I now get strong piti, and then I lose my clear awareness because I get carried away with the piti. Do I just need to work on steadying my concentration? Uh, that's not how I would phrase it. I would I would just simply say, note the piti, whatever that means. Piti is just a word. You have to describe a little more clearly what it is you're experiencing and, and note that. Take that as your object of awareness if you like it try and note that how to proceed when each time I want to be aware of the rising falling or the touching points uneasiness or restlessness appears should I note it every time or try to ignore it try and note it every time Keep doing it until your mind lets go. When you go to be aware, any uneasiness or whatever arises, note it, and then go to be aware again, and then note it again, if it's each time. It won't last. I mean, it's not going to be each time forever. Be patient. Don't. Again, this is about not being rigid about, I must do this, I must do this rising, falling, sitting, touching. Don't be rigid about it. You deal with things as they come, and then you always try to go back to the object. But trying just means inclining towards it until something takes you away from it. If that happens every time for now, it's fine. Just be patient with it. Nothing special about the or the main object. It's just good focus to come back to it every time. You explain to note the worry, anxiety, and the physical experiences as separate while having panic or social anxiety. What is the difference between worry and anxiety? It's a good question. There's not. I wouldn't say there's necessarily much difference. If it strikes you as being worried, then say worried. If it strikes you as being anxious and anxious. We have two words for a reason. We tend to see them as different flavors, and so if the flavor is worried and say worried if the flavor is anxiety say anxious right you can you can be worried sort of without being anxious even though it's probably the same mind states basically 
It's not this kind of question is not really that important. It's how it strikes you. If it strikes you as being worry, then say that. If it strikes you as anxiety, say anxious or anxiety. The more important is being able to separate the physical experiences because that's where we make the big mistake. We let the physical experiences uh, tell us that we're worried when we're when it's not. You can have have cut off the worry through mindfulness and still have butterflies in your stomach for for at least a few minute a few moments afterwards. And and if you're not careful and mindful, it will trigger more anxiety. Because, oh no, I'm anxious, and it makes you more worried. Like when you're going up on stage and you get butterflies in your stomach, and then if you're mindful, you say anxious, anxious. But then you've got butterflies and your heart is beating in your chest, and you oh no, I can't do this. People are going to notice that I'm anxious, and it makes you anxious again. big part of stage fright, I think, and panic attacks, that you let the physical experiences tell you something. If you deal with the mindly, it's actually quite powerful. In overcoming bigger hurdles in one's practice, such as ADD, reap bigger fruits in the long run. I guess the answer is obviously yes, but you might want to look at it a little differently. It's 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 a fine sort. That doesn't sound wrong, but rather than trying to overcome hurdles or seeing things as hurdles, try and focus on them as experiences. First of all, get rid of the label of ADHD or ADD. It's it's useful in a practical sense and a clinical perspective, but not from a medit from a meditative perspective. It's actually harmful. Don't focus on ideas like ADHD or ADD focus on experiences what is happening that makes you come to the conclusion or someone else come to the conclusion that you're ADD try to focus on those experiences because they're what's real and in fact don't try and get rid of them most of them are not really the, the core problem the core problem is usually your reactions to them it's often reactions to reactions when you're restless or anxious or whatever you react to that as well you get you get angry and frustrated about the fact that you're not able to focus so there's layers that we have layers of habits it's all a chain it's like we're we're machines and we have these algorithms that run each time we've just become we've programmed ourselves to react the brain is just like a big computer that we've programmed we've programmed it and we've refined our programming to be very efficient Okay, now this this came. Now I run this program where I get, where I get restless or anxious, and then I because of that at that some some point here's where I run this program, where I get very angry and frustrated and hate myself for being this way, and so on, feeling guilty, whatever. We have to reprogram ourselves, and more importantly, we have to see the programming, see clearly what's wrong. We have to investigate basically. A, Investigate simply by observing. You don't have to go looking. But as you observe, it'll all deconstruct itself. In fact, you don't really have to reprogram. The reprogramming is where the simile breaks down because it's just natural. 
you, you remove all the artifice you let the artifice fade away and you have a natural a natural behavior natural interaction with things just naturally enlightened people just are very normal very natural there's nothing out of the ordinary the rest of us people who are especially those who haven't meditated they're the ones who are all extraordinary or or abnormal become very ordinary in a sense very natural maybe is a better way of putting it so don't worry about reaping bigger fruits but I, I don't I wouldn't don't don't think too much like that just concentrate on your experiences try to see them for what they are and get out of the idea of problems solutions goals that sort of thing How does one overcome the problem of desiring not to desire? Stop looking at it as a problem, like everything else. Just see it as what's going on in your mind. If that's what's happening, then you say wanting, wanting, that's it. Nothing special. We don't try to overcome things. We don't try to overcome problems. We try to see experiences clearly. It's a very important, very basic premise in Buddhism. It's a paradigm shift of sorts. From trying to solve problems to trying to see clearly. I often hunch forward during the sitting meditation and I note knowing or feeling. Should I straighten my posture at any point during the session or remain hunched? It's good in the long run to straighten your posture. You don't have to sit perfectly straight, but it can be helpful. I wouldn't worry too much about it. Just whenever it feels like you're too hunched over, you can note the intending to move or wanting to move and then moving or straightening. But I wouldn't be too concerned with it. It's more about knowing how you are, how the body is, predisposed than, than sitting in some ideal position. Will practicing meditation help me do better in my academics? I used to be a brilliant student while I was at the university, and after that was a mess for me. How should I start? I think generally speaking, yes, but in two ways, I guess the answer is going to be no. Uh, first of all, because the practice often makes you less ambitious or, le or care less about your academics because they're actually not on a deep spiritual level important, right? They're not actually important for freeing yourself from suffering. They're just practically important for getting a job, etc., and also you're getting older, and I don't know how old you are, but as you get older, you start your your brain does your brain power does decline. The the energy you can put into things like academics, the, the power of memory, both decreases, and 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 the both the power decreases and the inclination to the drive, you know, the ambition, it slows down. So, 
and maybe maybe the time for being a brilliant student is over. But you know, I just recently or fairly recently finished my degree and did quite well. And meditation is a large part of that. Mindfulness is a large part of that. It definitely helped me with my studies. It helps you with everything because you're so much more focused and directed, efficient. You know, at peace, really. I mean, peace is, is a very useful thing, apart from just being great itself. It's very helpful in many ways. Just powerfully, mentally, it, it increases your strength of mind. Can the exercises be given by mail or another way except Skype? No, not not likely. I mean, maybe in maybe in very extreme circumstances we could work things out, but there's kind of a um, an expectation. No, not not just yes. Of course, we can do things in different ways, but two reasons. First of all. Without at least the audio conversation, it it's it's limited. It's um, you know, the ability to communicate is stifled. But also because it 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 potentially, unless you have really good reasons, it's potentially sort of a lack of of the. What's the word? The sincerity, I guess. Uh, if you're not able, or if you're not able to commit yourself to 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 that, unless you have again a really good reason, it's not. You know, you should be willing to commit yourself to Skype. Again, we can talk about it if you have real problems with it. But. Sometimes it's good to be forced to do things in a way that you'd rather not. So I'm not sure why you what, what your reasoning is, but it's something we should talk about. Are distractions just components of the same rising falling? I'm trying to note at the abdomen, even dependent on that same rising falling. We're not really interested in what things are components of or dependent on. Things are things. Experiences are things. Distractions are experiences. And the word distraction is, is often a little bit vague, you know, because anything could be considered a distraction. It's probably not how we'd want to describe them. Just try and see them for what they are. Is it okay to split up my meditation into three or four shorter sessions from time to time, rather than sticking to one or two sessions? When I sit for longer, I notice that the length of my daydreams gets longer. Does this take away from the value of a given session? What would you suggest? I would suggest generally not to sit, not to practice for too long, 
or too short. So doing many, many very short sessions or doing too few long sessions, both are, are too extreme. You should find some happy medium. Um, the idea that your daydream's getting longer, well, that is concerning. It's something that you have to work on. They should be getting probably shorter and that you should be catching them more quickly. So that's regardless, that's something you have to work on. If you find them getting longer, that's a different issue. It's something you have to work at. Try to catch them. Try to note the liking, the interest, whatever it is that leads you to to follow the, to to be led on by them. Because yeah, daydreaming does take away from the value of a session, but that's not really shouldn't really. I mean, of course, doing longer sessions is going to lead to more of it, but. It's not the cause. The cause is that you're not being as mindful as you could be. You're not catching them. So in that sense, sitting longer will probably help you to have more time to learn how to catch them. But only if you work at it. To be maybe a little more vigilant. I notice that I am swallowing more and more intensely. It's becoming a habit. I have a hard time containing that. It distracts me and could disturb others if I were in a group. How to deal with this? Well, don't worry about practicing in a group, first of all. You can practice on your own. That's generally better. Less distracting. Um, but um, don't work at containing it, because that can lead to aversion. Try to work just at noting it, swallowing or gulping or something like that. It's not a problem, it's just a, a, a reaction or a physical reaction, it's not a mental one. It can be triggered by things like worry, you know, fear, that sort of thing. But it can also just, it's also just a physical habit, so just note it when it happens. During breathing meditation, I become very calm and peaceful. However, after I open my eyes, my anxiety and OCD tends to increase much more than before. Why does this happen? Well, a big part of it can be that you're just noticing it more clearly. And even noticing it more clearly can even trigger it more strongly because you're more aware of it, right? So it can trigger a reaction and lead to real OCD. So that is an issue. But that, that, that comes stronger with things like peace and calm than it does with actual mindfulness. When you're peaceful and calm, you have to be careful to note that as well. Calm, calm. If you like it, say liking, liking. Because otherwise, yeah, it's going to, you're going to be taken off guard. And when this strong anxiety and OCD comes back, you're, you're, you're not going to be in a position where you can note them because you haven't been noting that that happens when you just get caught up in the peacefulness and you don't note it. So I, I, if that's what's going on and you're not noting the calm as much as you could or the liking of the calm or whatever, try and start there. But ultimately when the anxiety comes up and whatever the OCD is, you have to learn to note that as well. Because another thing is we're facing problems, we're not trying to distract ourselves from them and that can lead to a lot of 
our bad habits coming up quite strong. We're no longer engaging in our defense mechanisms to distract ourselves, to 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 run away from the problem. Facing things can make them uh, present themselves quite strongly in the beginning because we're allowing them, we're giving them the opportunity to arise. No longer afraid of them or running from them or hiding from them. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do, but much, much more worth it than running and hiding, avoiding. You say breathing meditation, so you might not be practicing in our tradition, in which case I would recommend you consider reading the booklet and trying to practice in our tradition and do the at-home course if you haven't done that or if you haven't done any of this. It's all free. We don't charge for stuff. It's just just there if it's useful. I have done a Vipassana course once two years back, continued since then, practiced during pandemic. Now the way I'm changing changes everything around. How do I manage and cope with the change? I don't know what sort of Vipassana course you did. If you're talking about in our tradition, then it should be pretty clear what you should do. Maybe read the booklet again. If you haven't read the booklet, if you're not doing according to our tradition, then recommend considering to do that if you're interested in my advice. We have an at-home course you could take. If you've done other intensive courses in other traditions, we could even talk about doing an intensive course in this tradition over the over Skype, because at least we know you're capable of staying in intensive meditation. If you've done all that, or if you have done a course in our tradition, then I would say just go back to the basics. Change doesn't change how you practice. It, it makes it harder, because we get used to, okay, I know how to deal with this situation. We, we learn how to deal with certain situations. But the deeper practice is to learn how to deal with, with experience. And that's universal. No matter how things change, way we interact with them, the way we work with them, the way we train ourselves doesn't change. How can we know things as they are? I heard you say, we can't know that this room is real. It seems that the only thing we can know is our representation of the world and not the world as it really is. Okay, so you've been brainwashed. You've been programmed and it's not even a question of whether that's wrong uh, in, in in the sense of incorrect I don't know how to say this it's it's wrong not in the sense of that's not the way things are in the world it's wrong in the sense of that's not helpful from a spiritual perspective in term in, in terms of us from a psychological perspective it's not helpful for you to look at the world that way it doesn't make you more happy, more peaceful, doesn't bring greater clarity about the way things are. Because, as you say, we, can't, we can only know something related to our experience of the world and not the world, and here's where we differ. The brainwashing is that that's how it really is, right? The, the room is how it really is, the, the, uh, 
um, physical uh, phenomena, the physical materials, those are how it really is. All we know is something that we experience, and the emphasis here is on all, like like as though it's inferior. The Buddhist perspective is that everything is based on experience. It's what Descartes came to when he said, Cogito ergo sum. He realized that we can't know any of that stuff. And it, and it's not even that that's a limitation of, of our... It's not our limitation, it's a limitation of those things. We only have, as a basis for our understanding of how things are, we only have our experience. I would argue, and and at least from a practical perspective, that has to be how we understand the universe. Not, okay, this is how I see things, but that's only because I'm a limited human being and there are many things outside of my experience, yada, yada, yada. I mean, that's how people come up with things like God or the self. Yeah, but it's also how science comes up with a lot of very useful predictions that up until quantum physics seem to be the set in stone and real, but as real as you can get. And quantum physics kind of showed that there's there's flaws to that theory. But it doesn't really matter. It's not like quantum physics is the be-all, end-all either. It's that uh, whether it is or isn't like that is irrelevant. It's not useful for us to look at things that way because we can't know them that way. We can't gain knowledge that way. What we can know is very limited. What we can know is our experience. We can know is our reactions, which are also experiences. We can know the process of interaction with reality. We can see how we react to things, how we interact with things. We can know all of that. We can understand the the nature of reality from an experiential point of view. And whether you whether or not that's quote unquote real is irrelevant because we're never ever by very nature going to know anything else. We, it's never going to happen. We cannot by very by their very nature. The only things we can know are experiences. And so, if we want to do something truly real, truly beneficial, that truly leads to understanding, like real understanding, it's never going to be about impersonal realities. Our mind is always going to be in an abstract state. It's going to be an abstracted sort of consciousness where we think in terms of concepts. We're always going to conceptualize things because we're not experiencing them. Atoms, right? Whatever, quarks, Higgs bosons, whatever. Quantum fields. It's all just going to be, even if it's real or not, it's not real in the sense of us actually knowing it and experiencing it. So knowing things as they are is, is knowing the things that we experience, the experiences themselves. And this isn't just theor theoretical, this is practical. You try that and you'll see how, how valuable it is, how, how life-changing it can be, how life-changing it is. There's no question once you see clearly in that way, so many things begin to fall into place, simplify, clarify, pacify.
What to do when two sensations arise simultaneously? As I observe the stronger one, it subsides, and the other of the two becomes stronger. As I switch, the same thing repeats. You would try just noting one, and, and you gain the focus to just see it, and when it's gone, go back to the rising and falling. It's not, there's no problem there. If you're going to go back and forth between one and the other, it's not wrong or bad. Um, but I would recommend just going back to the rising and falling and see what happens then. How important are the actual words when noting? Is an awareness of the experience itself without the words sufficient? I find it easier to observe the experience like this outside of formal meditation. Yes, we're not interested in easier. That's an important point to make. We're interested in the challenge, in challenging ourselves. The noting, in a way, strengthens the mind, just like weightlifting strengthens the body. So it's not going to be easy. It's by its very design challenging. That's the whole point. So yes, the words are important in that way. People ask, well, can't I just, as you're saying, can't I just note? And the answer is, you can, but it's like lifting weights without any weights attached, or less weights attached, or yeah, more like without any weights attached, really, because you're much more likely to drift and just go with your old habits. Noting is very strong and rigid in a sense, rigid in the sense that it doesn't allow any any sort of diversification, any extrapolation, what we call papancha. It doesn't allow for that. It is what it is. Done. Move on. And that creates very strong clarity where your mind s switches from interpreting things to experiencing them just as they are. That's important. That's a big part of the Buddhist practice. Is it a good idea when sitting cross-legged to start out by sitting back against a wall? It's better not to. It's better to try not to. You're, you're less likely to fall into states of drowsiness and laziness. Sitting straight up with your legs crossed, one in front of the other, it's a pretty good posture for staying awake, alert, and yet comfortable. Comfortable in the beginning, it doesn't feel like that at all, most likely, for most people. But comfortable in the long term, you have to kind of play the long game. Like, like over time, you're going to get better at it, and it's going to really, really help you to, to be able to do that. If you need to sit against the wall, it's more like something you do when you feel like you just can't sit upright anymore. How is the increase in meditative time regulated in the at-home course? Is it up to us, or will we be instructed to increase the time? I've left it up to the meditators in, in the at-home course, so yeah, if you're doing that now, know that at some point I'm going to tell you that you have to be up at two hours. I would say as soon as you feel comfortable, start increasing. It's not that big of a deal. In an, in an intensive course, I will lead you, direct you progressively day after day to increase, but... I could do that with the at-home course. I'm, I'm more inclined to let people, at the moment anyway, let people do it on their own. 
really fairly quickly most people should be able to get up to two hours a day some people in the course are doing even more every day so not not that that should put pressure on you but you should have a little bit of pressure to get to two hours as soon as you feel comfortable it shouldn't be that hard twice a day one hour one hour one hour in the morning one hour in the evening then you've done it In my meditation, I seem not to be able to distinguish between mental and physical. Is there really a body and a mind? It seems that there is only perceiving that cannot be said to be body or mind. Well, experiences are always going to have a mental component, so you can't escape that. But... This separating into physical and mental is useful because there clearly is some division. When you send your mind to the foot, you've sent it somewhere, and, and location is only a physical thing. Physical experiences are arising, you know, tension in the body, hardness, softness, heat and cold, even just heat and cold. They come from somewhere, it's not the mind. If you touch a candle flame, you're going to get hot, and that's not a mental thing. There's a physical aspect to it as well, right? There's something that wasn't imagined. You didn't create the heat in your mind. The experience of the heat is mental, but that's, of course, the experience is always mental. But there is a physical aspect to most of our experiences. When you see things with your eyes, there's a physical aspect to that. You didn't just make it up. It's different from when you close your eyes and you create the vision in your head, right? When you feel pain, it can be because of a stomach ache or something that you ate, and that's not mental. But with experience, they're of course they're they're part of the same. The experience is always going to be basically mental. But but we can see that part of part of the reason or the event that's occurring is physical. That's all. I wouldn't. You don't have to. It's not something you should dwell on. It's actually not that important. The other day, I asked about having questions for you during my meditations. Should I stop my meditation to write them down? I am not sure I understood if that's what you meant. That's what I meant. I mean, stop in terms of pause. Don't stop and say, okay, I have a qu question and I'm not going to meditate anymore. I have, a, I have a pad there at the ready. Write it down and go back to meditating. It's useful because then you can stop thinking about it. What was important, I think what I said where I hedged or what I what qualified it was that don't sit around thinking up questions like what questions can I think of now, right? Don't let it become a habit. Just do it when you say, oh, that's an important question and write it down. After how many days of intensive practice does the body start to relax, particularly the hips, so that one can sit more comfortably without desire for things to be easy? It depends. Depends on the person, of course. I mean, I guess the answer, the important answer here is don't worry about that. 
if your hips are tense that becomes an object of meditation that's all you should be concerned with if there's a desire for things to be easy note that if you're uncomfortable note that don't sit there waiting for it to get easier or, or you know more comfortable or i mean let's say when you have this sort of question try and note that and learn to let go of it go back to just noting all the pain and discomfort you guide us more on the at-home meditation course? As I understand, we will have to read the booklet and schedule the appointment. You have to read the booklet. If you want to get a head start, you can do start doing an hour of meditation a day, half walking, half sitting. If you do that for a week, then we can start. I can give you another exercise. So that can be your first week before we even meet. Just practice according to the booklet for a week. Half, half an hour walking, half an hour sitting, do them together. Uh, if you can't do a half an hour at a time each, then do 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting twice a day. But do walking and sitting together. Uh, you have to keep the five precepts, so you have to know what those are. That's about it. You need Skype, because that's what we use. And then you just call me on Skype when it comes time. If you don't get through, if I don't answer, that sometimes happens. It's not perfect. I'm not perfect. Try again. Keep trying. And either I'll call you back or you'll call. You'll get through to me eventually. Or you won't. In worst case, we'll just have to meet another time. My exams are causing great anxiety to me. My anxiety about failure in these exams gives me a feeling of immense inadequacy. I've been trying for two years. I have become too attached to the outcome. Help. So the exams aren't causing you anxiety, which I guess you probably know on some level anyway. But try and get that, get that clear in your mind. You don't have to feel anxious because you have exams. And, and it's not really that important what's causing the anxiety. If you haven't read the booklet, read the booklet. It might help. I've got a couple of videos, I think. I tend to talk about anxiety a lot. It's a big one, but it's also pretty easy to deal with. Just note the anxiety. Note the physical manifestations of anxiety. Note the thoughts. Note the feelings of inadequacy. Note the desire for a positive outcome. All of this. There's no simple solution, or there's no, there's no easy solution. But there is a simple solution. The simple solution is to practice mindfulness. If you've read the booklet, maybe consider doing an at-home course. It would probably help with your exams. There are links. The links are not only on screen now, but they're also in the description of the video. Can I put music on to cover talking of people or TV running in the background? Very difficult to meditate when I hear someone talking. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. Um, I've been in that situation before. I was in a meditation center and 
meditation centers in Thailand, it seems, are often, unless they're very strictly run, they're full of people who don't take it seri very seriously. So I had to listen to two monks talking right outside my window. The best was when I was with the Cambodians because I couldn't understand what they were saying, so it was just noise. But with the Thai people, I could understand what they were saying, and it was pretty challenging. But when you're in that situation, the best thing is to, to practice with it, to try and note hearing, to note all your reactions. It's not easy. It's hard. If you want to make it easier, this is one example, and this is the only example of where I would actually hesitantly, but, but I would suggest to use earplugs just because it's a, quite a challenge to have to listen. You just get caught up when people are talking. If it's any other noise, do not use earplugs, just note the sound. That's not so hard. It's not a problem. In fact, hearing them talk isn't a problem. It's just challenging because not only are you distracted by the sound, you're distracted by all the ideas, and that's, that is a, a valid problem. That's why you should find a place to practice where people aren't talking if you can. But when you can't, as a beginner especially, I would recommend considering to wear earplugs. Don't put on music, there's too many problems with that. I don't know if you could maybe put on some very loud white noise, that might be an interesting alternative. But I would say earplugs are probably better. Earphones even, right? Just with nothing on. You don't need the music, that's not helpful. If you're going to put any noise, find some white noise or something. I don't know. Seems a bit extravagant. When feeling angry or anxious, should we take this opportunity to do a meditation session? You take any opportunity to do a meditation session. When you're angry, it's very important that you're able to note it, but it's also important that you've trained so that when you are angry, you're able to catch it. And more importantly, more deeply, when the opportunity, when the uh, occasion to become angry arises, to note whatever it is that would make you angry so you actually don't become angry. Anger, you've already made a mistake once you get angry. Yeah, I have to go. I'm going to have to start cutting these short because I actually have a meeting at four. So are there any other really important ones? We have two more questions in the first tier and a couple right. of questions that aren't, but people seem uh, insistent. Well, that, we're not going to be bullied. Let's go for the two. If during a one-hour meditation, one feels after 30 minutes insight, but then in the next 30, very unpleasant boredom, is the suffering worthwhile? Insight is not really what you think it is. If you're boredom, you need insight into the boredom. You need to see the boredom more clearly. So that's very worthwhile to do that. If you feel insight, I, I, I'm not even sure what you mean by that. Insight's a, a word that I don't like to use because it's misleading in English. Clarity of mind is what you want. But when you have unpleasant boredom, that's where the work needs to be done. You need to change that about yourself. And so facing it and working on it is going to be very important. Disliking, bored, etc. I would recommend if you're doing uh, 
if you're not doing walking to do some walking as well that helps to break it up do walking first and then sitting half and half notice that when even the overwhelmed line has been passed I start to note help help and it clicks with the experience and calms me a little that would be the proper noting yeah don't do that Never, never, ever note what you want things to be, or I don't even know what you're doing here, but some kind of cry for help, I guess. Don't do that. It's very dangerous. I don't know who you're expecting to help you or who you feel is helping you, but th there lies great problems. Usually what happens with things like that is it's novel and kind of exciting a little bit, and so that's what pulls you out. It, it becomes more attractive than whatever was the problem. So it serves to focus the mind because of the, the liking of it. That's all that's happening there, most likely. Don't ever do that. That's where problems... And that's This is the one place where practice in this tradition can be dangerous because you're be clear that you're not actually practicing in this tradition. You're not actually doing what you should be doing, which is note things that are actually happening. When you're overwhelmed, say overwhelmed, overwhelmed. When you want, feeling calm is not a good sign. It's not necessarily a sign that you're doing things right. I mean, in the long term it is. But in the short term, you have to be ready to face whatever it is that's overwhelming you. Note things as they are, not noting as some kind of magic trick to, to change things. All right. Thank you for taking the extra time, Bhante. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day, everyone. Sad.